Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. The playoffs are here, man. What's going on? The playoffs are kind of here. <laughs> Sorry, Maybe the postseason. The postseason here. None of this. None of this officially counts as the playoffs or the regular season. We're all in some. We're at the nexus of the universe. We're at first and first. If uh, anyone <laughs> here has ever watched Seinfeld, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, it's this weird sort of purgatory that we're in right now, but it's been kind of an exciting purgatory. We've had four play-in games so far, so I guess you could say we're like halfway through the play-in stage. We've gotten a 50-burger from Jason Tatum, a complete blowout from my former Indiana Pacers, my since-renounced Indiana Pacers, and then two really good games last night. Uh, the Grizzlies pulling out a win over the Spurs, and a barn burner, honestly, between the Lakers and Warriors that really lived up to the billing. Given all that, and, and that we're now kind of setting up for the play-in finals, I guess you could call them, in both conferences. And given the sort of quality of play and the excitement that we've seen in these games so far, I am going to give you a chance, if you'd like to, to offer a retraction from your previous distaste, disaffection, dislike for the play-in tournament. Do, do you feel any differently now, having seen not only you know the games themselves, but sort of the way that it enlivened the last couple of weeks of the regular season? What do you think of how it's gone so far? As as a, a skeptic going into it, no, I, no, for sure, I like it. I mean, look, I, we've both at various times in this uh, podcast history have welcomed being wrong about certain things, and I very much welcome the fact that I was wrong about this one. I think. The NBA has accomplished its goal in that more games mattered late in the season. More teams were in it, whether they wanted to be or not in some cases, um, in the race anyway. And the drama that was delivered because of the play-in that they created was was top-notch and, and much more dramatic and exciting than most late regular seasons are. And then, I mean, how could, like, look, I still, I, I there is still a bit, like a part where I'm like, man, it's it's so weird to me that 20 of 30 teams have a chance to make the playoffs when you play such a long season. But, you know, especially in the West, I think it's exciting because there's usually a good 10-ish, sometimes more playoff caliber teams. It still bothers me in the East like that. In I know it was just one game, but like that Indiana-Charlotte game, like the fact that that was some form of postseason play, like made me throw up in my mouth a little bit. And even like, look, we will get into it. We both think Indiana Washington couldn't be fun tonight, but you know, it's not exactly top quality basketball. So the one thing I would say is I I do like the play in. I think it's delivered what it should. I still wonder if there's a way they can kind of amalgamate this year's idea with last year's where maybe there is a cutoff where it's like, you have to be within a certain, you know, if there's like, if there's a season where for whatever reason, and we've seen it before, like there's been a couple of years, for example, in the West where like the top eight has actually very much separated itself from the bottom seven. They're like, say in the East, you know, the, the top nine teams, I don't know, in an 82 game season, like maybe ninth place is like 38, 39 wins, but 10th place is like 33 and 49. It's going to feel weird that that team has a chance to make it after all that. But, 
at the end of the day, the NBA is accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish and and we're getting exciting basketball out of it. So yeah, I, I can't complain about it. Yeah, maybe they should just say no play-ins in the Eastern Conference until we can figure out this whole conference imbalance thing. See, th- that's the thing. To me, it's like if, if they're going to stick with the play-in, then I think like more than ever, like we're just moving to a point where scrapping conferences makes so much sense, you know, like balance the schedule a little more, go no conferences, just go to a top 16 or whatever the case may be. Go, go with like a crate, you know, forget that mid season tournament idea they've had for a while. Like that would be like, a, you know, soccer style league cup, go with something like a little tournament at the end. That would be a, an actual play in tournament, not with this, you know, they call this a play on play in tournament. It's basically a couple games, but do a real play in tournament in that case where it's like, you know, the top 12 get in and then it's like an eight team tournament with like 13 versus 20, 14. You know what I mean? Like, I think yeah. there's a pathway here to keep the play in, keep it crazy exciting, but also scrap conferences and try to ensure that, you know, we're not watching Pacers Hornets as quote unquote postseason play a year or two from now. And if they did scrap conferences and just went to like a one through 16, then they could still do a play in, you know, and have maybe like the top 14 seeds locked in and then like 15 to 18 duke it out for the last two spots Mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, man. I I just like, I've been in favor of scrapping conferences for a while. It just seems like it's never really going to happen because I I don't think that you're ever going to get enough, you need 20 of 30 votes, right, for the Board of Governors to approve something like that. I just don't think you're ever going to get enough support from the Eastern Conference teams to make that happen. You know, unless somehow like we see the scales tilt back in the other direction and then you won't get the support from the western <laughs> well yeah i mean it, the the only ideal circumstance i guess for for a vote like that to actually go through would be if the conferences were more or less exactly equal and then in that case i think you probably have everybody saying well the conferences are exactly equal so yeah. why would we change anything you know yeah. um anyway we, we we should i guess move on and, and talk about the games themselves. We don't have to spend too much time on them, but you know what? Before before we do that, I actually just wanted to get one thing out of the way. I want to get an early episode shout out this week to someone, and it's actually someone that we've given a shout out before to. It's Muhammad Mataki, and the reason I wanted to shout him out is because he actually hit me up on Instagram a couple nights ago to let me know that uh, he was trying to listen to one of our pods from like a few weeks ago, and there was an issue on Spotify, and uh, only our last two episodes were showing up. So then I got in contact with our bosses here at the score and, and they were able to figure it out. So it, first of all, if anyone was having issues listening or downloading on Spotify, apologies, it has been sorted out. Uh, so I did just want to give another shout out to Muhammad because, um, you know, kudos to him for a being so such a devoted listener that after missing a few weeks, he was actually trying to catch up and was listening to like our last episode from April and B when things weren't working and he couldn't find certain episodes, he actually reached out to me to get it fixed and it has now been fixed so i did want to get that early fan shout out in this week because it's much deserved appreciate that muhammad so yeah did you have any kind of sweeping takeaways from this batch of play-in games i mean i think like the league sort of lucked out with them getting lebron versus steph lakers and warriors in a play-in game in like the first year that they implement this tournament in its sort of fully fleshed out form. And I really thought that that game delivered. Steph was pretty unbelievable. Draymond put in one of the best 
two-point games, I think, that I've ever seen. His defense How many was, times have we said that about Draymond this season? Yeah, I mean, all like the list of like the best two-point games of all time is like <laughs> Draymond and Dennis Rodman and pretty much nobody else, right? But yeah, that I mean that and it's been that kind of season for him. And I think it cuts both ways because I think in a way, and I wrote about this, you know, we did a whole podcast episode about it with Sirat Sohi. To me, in a lot of ways, this season has demonstrated what makes Draymond special because scoring was never his strong suit, but it's gotten to a point where it's almost completely evaporated for him. And that's like really amplified all the other things that he does well and the different ways that he contributes to winning where like, you know, he's not going to bring it as a scorer and he's almost forced to like up his game in every other way and forces you to pay attention to all the other things that he's doing because you're seeing like the Warriors are consistently winning his minutes. They're at their very best when he's on the floor. Steph plays better when he's on the floor. Their role players play better when he's on the floor. And that forces you to kind of pay closer attention and try and figure out what it is that he's doing that makes all that possible. And so I think in a weird way, the fact that he has become such a non-threat as a scorer has brought all these other aspects of his game to the forefront. And I thought last night was a great example of that. I mean, his defense, especially in the first half, was absolutely ridiculous and definitely made me feel validated for advocating for him to win Defensive Player of the Year on our last episode. But then I also think, and we've talked about this before, it really revealed the limitations of having him be your second best player. And that stretch when Steph hit the bench to start the fourth quarter, Draymond hit the bench with him. And the Warriors have done this all season. They tethered those two guys together, which makes all the sense in the world because Draymond can't really be Draymond to the fullest extent when Steph isn't out there with him. You know, he is an amplifier. He's not a second star in the sense that when your first star hits the bench, it's like, oh, this is this guy's show now. He's running the offense against like an opposing second unit. That's not what Draymond does. Like everything he does offensively, it, it kind of completely dries up when Steph isn't out there. So they both start the fourth quarter on the bench while LeBron and AD stay on the floor for the Lakers. Draymond comes back in before Steph does. And it's like the Warriors still can't do anything offensively. And then finally Steph comes back in. Like, I, I think he only wound up sitting for like the first minute and a half or so of the fourth quarter, but that was enough for the Lakers to go on a six, nothing run. And maybe they relinquished the lead after that, but like they were they did kind one of, more time. They were kind of in control from that point forward. And that was a stretch. I think that cost the Warriors the game. And And that just comes back to this issue about the Warriors team construction, where as good as they are when Steph and Draymond are out there together, they can't be out there together all the time. And things really fall apart when, you know, even when one of them is off the floor. So that was, you know, my takeaway from the Warriors perspective, which is like, they they can be breathtaking to watch at times. Obviously Steph is, you know, one of the most breathtaking players to watch when he has it going. But uh, that's why it's just hard for me to, imagine them you know even if they go and win this next play-in game against memphis which i certainly don't think is a guarantee it's hard for me to imagine them putting a real scare into utah uh if it well, comes to that utah's got to be 
breathing a huge sigh of relief right now because for a while there it looked like they were dangerously close to being rewarded for having the best regular season in franchise history and the number one overall seed by having to play the defending champion Lakers with LeBron James and Anthony Davis as a first round opponent. I will say the everything you mentioned about Draymond, like the the insanity of what Steph did this year on the offensive end, and I think we mentioned it on a podcast on an episode at some point this season, is that like you look at what he's done offensively and then the supporting cast he got like his the warriors second best offensive player is a player who derives almost zero of his offensive value from putting the ball in the basket and yes. and that's what Steph's had to work with and again like Draymond brings so much to the table including on the offensive end with his just like his smart to screening his playmaking but yeah what Steph's done on the offensive end this year when you look at the offensive supporting cast is is it's pretty mind-blowing. It's not really unlike, you know, what we mentioned with Shea Gildas-Alexander in Oklahoma City this year, where it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you can make the argument Al Horford was their second most important offensive player. And again, doesn't really derive much of his offensive value from actually putting the ball in the basket this year. But yeah, defensively, Draymond was a monster. I mean, I tweeted about how there's now a such thing as a 17-game player. And Dray- Draymond created the whole narrative of a 16-game player versus an 82-game player. Well, he's now inadvertently created the narrative of a 17-game player because Draymond's it, man. He's just a gamer. Like, one way or another, whether, you know, his shot's falling or not, this year not, uh, he's not even trying to shoot. Like, big game, Draymond Green's going to show up and do something to, you know, come close to helping your team win. I mean, his stat line in that game was just so quintessentially Draymond. I think it was two points, nine rebounds, eight assists, three steals, three blocks, Six turnovers, five personal fouls, and a tech. Like yeah. that's I love him, man. There's that's only one. The quintessential Draymond game. Yeah. He is one of one. Um, I mean, from the Lakers side of things, obviously, I, I don't think that that game really assuaged any doubts or concerns about AD and LeBron's health. I do think, and, and I was even tweeting this when LeBron looked like he was moving in slow motion in the first half looked completely disengaged from the offense. There was a point at which, and they they didn't do this nearly enough, I don't think. Like having a small screen for him, it was just like not really happening, especially in the first half. And there was one possession where they finally did it and he got Steph switched on to him. But then he waited and waited and then called for AD to come up and set a screen for him. And Draymond was guarding AD, so he had Steph. Then he called for an AD screen and then had Draymond instead and then just, like, took one dribble and passed it off to the wing. It was, like, very strange. And even then, I was thinking, like, okay, like, LeBron is the ultimate game manager. He's keeping his eye on the score. Like, the Lakers are sort of still within spitting distance. He's preserving himself for the finishing stretch. And he's going to be fine. He's going to come out and have a huge second half, which he did. But the fact that he had to pace himself to that extent, I think is still a bit of a concern to me. And AD sort of got going in the second half as well. And I will say, for as much as those guys struggled at points at the offensive end, they were incredible defensively in the second half. Like when they had to crank it up, they were everywhere, bringing ball pressure, rotating on the back end, protecting the rim. Like it was a sight to behold. And, And I think... At both ends of the floor, the Lakers weren't really fully unlocked until they went to AD at the five. And that unleashed him offensively and defensively. I think that really helped them snuff out what the Warriors were trying to do. So 
How many um, times have we said that over the last two seasons? Yeah, I mean, that is their ace in the hole, right? And I understand their reluctance to play it other than in the highest leverage moments, like, right. you know, apart from when they really need to do it. But I think it was a good reminder that they will go to that when they really need to do it and that it is one hell of a trump card. Yeah. But it does bring up a question for me, which is like, they put themselves in a hole by starting the game with Drummond. And are they going to do that against Phoenix? Because I think that would be a huge mistake. I think the way that they can really attack Phoenix and make Phoenix uncomfortable is by not giving DeAndre Ayton a hiding place. Like, make him guard AD. I don't think Ayton is the kind of center... Like, yeah, he can get after it on the offensive glass, but I don't think you worry about him like beasting AD in the post or like worry about the size advantage that you're giving up in that matchup. Like, I think that's much more concerning for Phoenix, having him have to deal with AD's speed, having to guard more in space than, you know, throwing a traditional center out there. Like, even if they started Gasol, right? Because at least Gasol is giving you that stretch element and you're maybe able to pull Aiden away from the basket a little bit. But if they start that series against Phoenix and they're just sort of burning five to seven minutes at the beginning of each half with Drummond at the five, like I think Drummond can be effective as a bench center in that series. Cause like who do the Suns have playing yeah. center off the bench? You know, it's like yeah. Dario Saric. Who... Saric should have to jump on Drummond's back to like physically contain him. Right. That's what I'm saying. Like I, Drummond can, can be effective coming off the bench in that series. I think if they really want to go for the jugular against Phoenix, I think they, from the jump, should be starting with AD at the five, or at the least going with Gasol. Because I, I just, I, I'm not even like a Drummond hater. I think there are certain things that he does that are actually productive, and I think he probably gets more hate than is actually deserved. There, there are ways that he contributes that I think people don't always fully appreciate, but I don't think that's the matchup for him so so that was kind of my big takeaway from the lakers side of things you mentioned ad and lebron's health maybe being a little concerning early on because the fact lebron even had to pace himself before the playoffs have even really started but i don't know man the way that they came on down the stretch and especially defensively and especially in the second half and the fact that you know i don't think that series against phoenix now starts until sunday they have what three days off in between like i feel like I don't know. It's LeBron, man. They'll, they'll, he and they all figure out a way to get his body ready for that. Yeah, he's also going to show up to game one with an eye patch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. There's no way he actually saw three rims, but you know what? <laughs> Do you, LeBron. You're LeBron James. I mean, look, you hit a shot like that to to yeah. win the game and punch your ticket to the playoffs. I mean, you can, you can do and say whatever you yeah. want. LeBron is above reproach in basketball yeah. terms at this point. Yes. So... We can, I mean, you, you want to look ahead, I guess, to the two play-in games that are left. We've got now Warriors and Grizzlies, which we kind of got a preview of in their game last eight. regular yeah. season game. Um, and then, incredibly, we have Pacers-Wizards, which, if you remember our preseason podcast when we did bold predictions, you predicted that the Wizards would get the seven seed, which they actually had a chance to do but they lost to the Celtics in the first playing round. But basically that led to an argument between us about who was going to finish ahead of who between them and Indiana. 
And now this game is for, I won't say all the marbles, but the, the very oh, few, the, the very few marbles that we had on the table for that particular disagreement. It comes down to this. And I got to say, I, I'm leaning towards saying that it's going to be the wizards as well. Obviously a full strength Pacers team, it would be a different story, but I think, I guess pending Beal's health, right? He hasn't looked close to 100% in the last couple of games that he's played on that wonky hamstring, but I still think the Wizards have a leg up in that matchup. So we can just hit on them quickly, I guess. That game's going tonight, and then we've got uh, Grizzlies-Warriors on Friday night, but uh, where do you want to start? In three wins against the Pacers this season, (laughs) I can't even say this without laughing. Russell Westbrook averaged 27 points, 20 assists, 18 rebounds, a block and a steal. Um, I just can I, think, can I throw my stat out there? Before yeah, yeah, you I was continue? hoping you would. Yes. Okay, so obviously the rust stats are insane, and the stat that I'm going to throw out is very much connected to that. But yeah. in the two regular season games that they played when Turner was out, as he's obviously going to be for this game tonight, the Wizards averaged 81 points in the paint. 81. That was the average number of paint points that they scored in those two games. And they shot 65% on those paint shots, over 70% at the rim. The Pacers have been pretty disastrous in terms of their interior defense without Turner this entire season. And, you know, with all due respect to O'Shea Brissett, who in many ways has kind of saved the Pacers season, I don't think that he can really rectify that problem. I, I, I love DeMontis Sabonis, but he is not anybody's idea of a rim protector. And when you're going up against somebody like Russell Westbrook, that becomes very problematic because not many players in the league put more pressure on the rim than he does. So that's why you see those ridiculous numbers that he's put up, I think, in this season series. And I think there are some ways that the Pacers can make things a little bit easier on themselves, like maybe going under screens against Russ instead of insisting on trailing him over top every single time and essentially inviting him to get into the middle of the floor and giving him that two-on-one with the rolling big man, which is exactly what he wants to do. It would be nice to see them maybe adapt their coverage and go under some of those screens and see if Russ can navigate that situation. Like he, he is explosive enough to occasionally beat the under by just driving and beating the the defender to the spot and getting into the lane anyway. But I still think that that is a a much more sensible coverage for him than insisting on going over top. Yeah, and it's also your best bet of, like, sure, Russ, as you said, once in a while will just beat his guy to the spot even when guys go under. But going under is also your best bet to turn him into not even a reluctant shooter, a very willing shooter that the Wizards don't want him to be. Like, if, if you're Indiana... Right now, you're playing into Russ's hands, but you can very easily flip the script and have Russ play into your hands with this very simple adjustment that they just refuse to do. I, I don't know. I mean, you had joked in a text message that Bjorkman is just holding his cards, you know, and like hasn't been showing his hand this entire season in preparation for this play-in that, you know, obviously everyone knew had come down to Wizards Pacers. But yeah, short of that unlikely scenario, I don't think the Pacers will adjust, and I do think Russ will feast again. And I also just think, you know, everything about Russ, the season he's had, that who he is, and the game that he had against the Celtics, to me, like, I know you've brought up 
his history in the playoffs and, and, you know, the issues there. And I'm not saying he'll have necessarily a great playoffs or, or a good playoffs at all if they get in and get trucked by the Sixers. But I just think the way that his season has gone and the things he's done to get the Wizards to this point, I just personally have a hard time believing we'll get two stray games of bad rust now that they're in the plan as opposed to, okay, he had he got the shitty one out of the way and now we're going to have like unbelievable rust tonight. And then, yeah, I mean, they'll probably crap the bed in the playoffs. But <laughs> I, I just can't see... Yeah, well, it, but it's not even so much about him of, him getting the shitty one out of the way. It's more just I think this matchup is more favorable to him. Much more, yes. But, you know, the rust that we saw in the game against the Celtics, what, like, I, I feel like I kind of said that that was exactly what was going to happen to him in the playoffs. That's... Well, joke's on you because it's not the playoffs, all right? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. We'll see what happens tonight. I don't think we need to spend too much more time on that matchup just because by the time a lot of people are listening to this, it may have already happened. So let me hear your thoughts on Grizzlies Warriors. This is another one where you go back to the start of the season. My bold prediction was that the Grizzlies were going to be better than the Warriors. And then when we looked at the West play-in race, I don't know when that was, maybe you know a month or six weeks ago, we both agreed actually that it was going to come down to Grizzlies Warriors for that eighth spot. You picked the Warriors. I picked the Grizzlies. Here we are again. This time I'm sticking to my guns. What do you think is going to happen in this game? Uh, man, I, I really like the idea, and I have for a while, of the Grizzlies overcoming like what happened last year, them kind of blowing, having a playoff spot until the last week of the season and then losing the plan. I like the idea of like them overcoming that this year and winning two play-in games to get into the playoffs and break through. But I have a hard time believing the Warriors will lose this game. Now, I like there are certain areas, like for example, you know, as great as Draymond is defensively, I think Jonas Valanciunas can have some fun in this matchup. And JV has been absolutely beasting this season especially lately and I don't like Draymond's defensive strengths I mean Draymond can basically do everything defensively but his best like his biggest defensive strengths is not exactly like just matching up straight up one-on-one with a behemoth in the post right there are so many other things he does defensively and at this stage of his career I'm not even sure if he necessarily can do that for like 48 minutes or you know as many minutes as they need him to so I think if if the Grizzlies milk the Valanciunas advantage, the way that they actually have, you know, recently, and they just kind of get enough from everyone else, you know, Dylan Brooks, your all defensive team pick, and a guy who is just absolutely turning heads defensively right now and and raising eyebrows. Like, if he does what he, he can do on the perimeter defensively, and they milk the Valanciunas matchup inside, and they just kind of get like. Everyone else, including Ja, just playing up to their capabilities. No one has to like go insanely over their heads here. Then I think the Grizzlies can win this. Um, me going with the Warriors would just be, you know, my stubborn belief in Steph at this point in a one game winner take all situation. You know, I might, funny enough, like if this was a seven gamer, I might pick the Grizzlies to win this series. In a one game winner take all situation, I believe in the power of Steph to get it done. I mean, that's a totally justified belief. It's it's hard to argue with. I am more so just going with the Grizzlies because they've been my pick 
throughout the season and I waffle on a lot of things. I'm going to stick to my guns on this one. I just really like their team. And I do think there are kind of a couple of matchups or a couple of sort of tactical touchstones that are going to define this game and what happens. And and one you mentioned, right? It's the, the Valanchunas thing. Their last game they played, JV went for 29 and 16 and he was a minus 13 in the game. And this is like the, the sort of tactical push and pull. And it's almost like a microcosm for a lot of the arguments that we've been having over the last, you know, 10 odd years in the sport. Because on the one hand, it's like, okay, Team X is going small. You have this behemoth center who can absolutely eat in the post and on the offensive glass. Do you want to be the team that sort of blinks first and adjusts and has to take, you know, in the Grizzlies case, maybe their most important player off of the floor in key spots to kind of play the game on the Warriors terms? Or do you want to press your advantage and see if you can use your size to beat up on a smaller Warriors team? I I don't know what the answer is. I, I do think that for the Grizzlies, like they can't really afford to take him off the floor. I think he's just too important to what they do, both in terms of his screening, his role gravity, and maybe more than anything, the offensive rebounding. Because, you know, like maybe it's just because the Grizzlies are so used to him and, and what he's able to do on the offensive glass that like they don't look for him that often on the roll. Like they'll just pull up, whether it's a, a three, a mid-range jumper, or a floater, and just trust that even if they miss, like there's a pretty good chance that he's going to be able to clean it up. And I think like their offense depends on that so much. They they don't have a way to replace it. So I think they've got to live defensively and, and try and shield him the best they can. And I, I think, you know, probably the way to do that, if it's like the Warriors playing Draymond at the five, which I assume they're going to be doing a, a large chunk of the time, maybe it's like you put Kyle Anderson on Draymond and that gives you the opportunity to switch Steph Draymond pick and roll. Is there like I don't know? Is there a Juan Toscano Anderson who's on the floor? I, like I was gonna say, Toscano might be the best bet then. To stash but then the junior. problem is like the like the Warriors can just use Toscano Anderson as a screener. Also, you know, I, I don't know that there's a great answer, but I think I feel like the Warriors just in general have too much movement within their offense. It's like such a free flowing offense that it's even even when a guy's a bit of an offensive zero or negative, it's still hard to hide guys on like high defensive weaknesses on a player on the Warriors because there is just too much movement. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that for sure. I, I just like, I do still wonder if, if that's the best approach though, because if you have a switchable defender like slow-mo for instance on Draymond, and then that is dissuading the Warriors from using Draymond as a screener, and instead they're using somebody like a JTA as their primary screener for Steph, that's kind of still maybe a win for the Grizzlies. Mm -hmm. And and like the other thing is, and this is sort of the other matchup element that I was alluding to is like Dylan Brooks on Steph. And I actually think Brooks did a really good job on him. I think Steph wound up with what, 46 points in their last game. I think Brooks did a good job on on him before he fouled out. And his ability to navigate screens and stay attached might give the Grizzlies a chance to play things a little bit more straight up 
not have to switch. Maybe you don't play JV in like a deep drop, like you bring him up a little bit higher, but it's not like you have to bring him up to the level of the screen or have him hedge or anything like that because Brooks is doing such a good job fighting over and making it difficult for Steph to get to that pull-up. Like that's going to be a really, really important element, I think, of their defensive coverage. And if Brooks can do a good job of that, then that's going to go a long way, I think, towards allowing JV to hang defensively. So that's kind of how I see it. And the Grizzlies bench was weirdly terrible in that game against the Spurs, and that's been a strength for them all season. So we'll see how or if that changes against a Warriors team that has also had its share of bench struggles. Brandon Clark didn't play in that game. And I'm a little, I don't know if confused, but like I was a little surprised by that, that he just didn't get in the game. I don't think he's injured. I'm pretty sure that was a DNP CD. Yeah, it seemed like it. And they just decided to go with Tillman instead, who really struggled. He was a minus 22 in 10 minutes. So we'll see if Clark can get into this game um, and if they can get more from their bench. Like (laughs) Melton was terrible. Like Grayson Allen was terrible. Tillman, as I mentioned, really struggled. Like they need a lot more from those guys. Um, But I think we can leave that there. Very excited to watch those pair of games. Um, We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and we will preview the six series that are already set in stone. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, we've talked about the play-in games, the ones that have happened, and the ones that are still to come. But we have six playoff series that are now set, and I think a lot of good ones. I, I, I actually think this has a chance to be a really incredible first round. So why don't you hit me with the series that interests you most uh that you're kind of most excited to talk about and we can go from there i mean it's got to be lakers Suns. there are some really good ones but how could it not be lakers Suns? this is in my opinion two championship contenders meeting in the first round i do that uh that piece every year where i i the anatomy of a, a champion where i look at like the statistical profiles of modern champions and then try to find the teams in the league that like check all the boxes that you know, offensively, defensively, shooting-wise, um, star talent-wise, uh, obviously wins-wise, point differential-wise, like to see which teams, if any, check like every single box. And this year, three teams did, and one of them was the Suns. The other were the Jazz and the Clippers. The Suns, like not just for the sake of that piece, but in general, pretty much check all the boxes. I would like them to have, you know, more of a wing scorer, as opposed to just backcourt stars and, and everyone else kind of, but other than that, they pretty much check every box of a modern contender. And I think they, they are good enough to win it. If things break their way, well, things have not broken their way because they get LeBron James, Anthony Davis and the defending champion Lakers in the first round. So yeah, I just think, um, how can this not be the series to watch given that, you know, it's LeBron in the playoffs, which is always, you know, an absolute treat and sight to behold, but it's also LeBron in the playoffs as defending champions 
in the first round against a very worthy championship contender with a guy like Chris Paul, who is, you know, I've talked about it before, whether it was like the Mavs in 2011 with Dirk or the the way I spoke about the Raptors a couple of years ago when just going into the playoffs, you know, even outside of Kawhi, I just mentioned that they just had, seemed to have that aura about them of that like team on a mission, like that veteran team that's kind of on the cusp between Lowry and Gasol and even Ibaka. And I do get a little bit of that vibe with Chris Paul this season and, and just like maybe maybe things are just going to work out for him. Like maybe this is just his year. But then, you know, you draw the Lakers in the first round. You're like, ah, I guess not. Um, so, yeah. And then there's all, like, a lot of things I'm actually just interested to watch in that series. Like I've said all year that the reason I like Phoenix, you know, out of the group of Phoenix, Denver, um, Utah, and whoever else, and Dallas was because unlike those other teams, and this was obviously pre-Aaron Gordon trade, but still, unlike those other teams, Phoenix had the type of big wing defenders that you need to go up against the LeBrons, the Kawhis, the PGs, and that's Mikael Bridges and Jay Crowder. So I'm also interested just in that, you know, like what does Mikael Bridges look like in his first taste of playoff action when he does have to match up with LeBron James? You know, does Jay Crowder still have a little bit of that postseason magic left in him? What does Devin Booker look like in his playoff debut? You know, he's been waiting a long time for this. So there there are a lot of questions or a lot of, I think, fascinating things to watch in this series. And I think, you know, it's got the potential to be an absolute epic, especially for a first round series. Yeah, and I kind of think, yeah, it's a tough luck draw for the Suns. I mean, you wait 10 years to get back to the playoffs, have this magical season, and you're rewarded with a date with the defending champs, you know, LeBron and AD. Not ideal, but if the Suns fancy themselves as legitimate championship contenders, if you're looking at what's, you know, their most likely path I guess, toward actually winning the whole thing and not just winning a round or elongating their first postseason appearance in a decade, you know, for as long as they can. Playing the Lakers early, I mean, might that not be preferable to playing them late? Like there's still maybe some cobwebs to shake off because this group hasn't played together a ton and LeBron and AD might still be working their way back into shape and back into form maybe this is the time that you want to catch them. If the goal is win the championship and you think that you're probably going to have to go through the Lakers at some point to do it anyway, I mean, maybe now is when you want to go through them. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's a fair point. Like, the Lakers are probably more vulnerable now than they would be two to four weeks from now when they get their legs under them. But there's still also an element of like, can you see LeBron James losing in the first... Like. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like sometimes it really is that simple for me. Not to boil everything just down to that, mm-hmm. but like sometimes it really does. Like, well, this I, is I think, this is his first time going into the playoffs without home court advantage in the first round. Yeah, no, I know, and it, it's just like, look, there are reasons to believe. Yes, the Lakers will go down in this series. There really are. But again, like sometimes it just comes down. Like, sit. Like, I'll ask you. Like, can, can you see LeBron James losing in the first round? I can see it. I wouldn't bet on it. It's not what I expect. But I think there are enough red flags to me and enough positive signs from the Suns side of things to believe that, yes, it is definitely possible. I I think going back to what we were talking about at the top of the episode, there are going to be some things that are telling to me as far as, okay, how, 
how serious are the Lakers about just like taking charge of this series from the jump? And if they come out in game one and Drummond starting at the five, I think that's going to be frustrating from the Lakers end because I just don't think that's the right approach for them. And like, why futz around? I think it was a different story last year and it's been a different story in past postseasons for LeBron-led teams where they haven't necessarily had to throw their best punch right away, where LeBron has had these, you know, quote-unquote feel-out games where starting a series, he's a little bit passive. He's sussing out the opposing team's rotations, their defensive coverages, and just getting a sense for how he wants to attack the series. I don't think he can afford to do that this time around. I don't think the Lakers can afford to do that because... The Suns are too good, and if you give them some confidence and some belief that they can really pull this off, especially for a team that's young and inexperienced like that, I think you want to try and like step on their neck right away and not give them that hope. And I think the best way to do that is just to like throw your best punch right away. Just do it. Because you know when we talk about the importance of experience in the playoffs, it, it's stuff like that, right? Like I think there is a possibility of, for some of those young Suns guys. And I have a lot of faith in Devin Booker. Like, I don't think he's going to quake under the moment or anything like that. But I think there's a possibility of just them getting a little bit of shell shock. Like if they get punched in the mouth in game one. And so I would like to see the Lakers. It's not even what I would like to see. Like, I don't have a rooting interest in the series, but if I were a Lakers fan, I would like to see them come out and snuff out any hope or like deflate the Suns and kill their spirit as early as they possibly can. Yeah, we do those um, who you got play in previews for every series. And my X factor was going to be Andre Drummond, but not in the sense of like, what can Andre Drummond do on the court? But more so, is Andre Drummond on the court? Because I agree with you that like it's, you know, I think you went a step further and probably went with the right point in that just starting with AD at the five is the, you know, just go go for the jugular right away. When I was originally thinking of it as the X factor, I was even thinking just start Marcus Gasol. You know, start Marcus All and just like don't sure. play him a lot and and ride AD at the five for the majority of the game, but you don't have to start like that. But yeah, I mean, if you truly want to go for the jugular and if AD is, you know, up for the challenge health-wise, up for the task, then yeah, just do that. Like that that is going for the jugular. And I think this Suns team, as good as they are, because of the inexperience there, might be actually susceptible to being shell-shocked, you know, and and maybe being rattled by an early punch in the mouth right and like if you're lining up against somebody like Jonas Valanciunas for instance I could maybe more see the case for starting Drummond or Gasol like starting a legitimate five because JV is going to put a hurting on you like you are going to feel him and to have AD play the five for you know 36 minutes against a center like that in game one of what could be a long series I would understand not necessarily wanting to expose him to that right away and putting that kind of wear and tear on his body as he's still recovering from this injury. I think DeAndre Ayton shows like the tiniest flashes of playing with that level of force, but for the most part, he doesn't do it. He's not the kind of center who really makes you feel him all the time. He can be passive. He can settle for fadeaway jumpers. He's not always aggressive getting those post seals. Like I would challenge Ayton to be like, you know what, we're playing our our typical four at the five against you because we don't believe that you can actually put a hurting on him. Like, challenge him to do that. And I think, ultimately, 
long term, I believe in DeAndre Aiden. Right now, going into this postseason, I'm very skeptical. And I think that would be a good bet for the Lakers if they kind of put that challenge to him. You got you got anything more to, to say about that matchup? No, just that it's, you know, un- unfortunate for the Suns. <laughs> yeah, but also, like, LeBron and Chris Paul have never played each other in a playoff series before. That's pretty cool. I'm excited yeah. to watch, man. Just, like, the the chess moves that are going to be going on on both sides, and I, I think it's going to be all kinds of fun. So hit me with your next one, man. What uh, What's the next most interesting series to you? Come on. You know where I'm going. Is it Bucks Heat? It's Bucks Heat. Let's go. Let's get it. Two years in a row, although I think we actually spoke about this, what, maybe a week or two ago about how I would probably lean Bucks this year. You know, go against my Heat, Pat Riley's Miami Heat, Jimmy Butler's Miami Heat. But uh, yeah, look, I think, and we wrote about it in one of those Who You Got series previews that people can find on the app. I think the Bucks, despite my question marks about whether they have a championship level shot creator yet, I think they've... They've answered some of my other questions about them. I mean, look, they, I think you've written about it this year about how they've diversified actually on both ends of the court, you know, whether it's how and where on the court Giannis is attack, like beginning his attacks, whether it's defensively, you know, their willingness to switch. Uh, I've mentioned that, you know, the, the Bucks' lack of depth in their roster construction might actually save Budenholzer from himself because he has no choice but to rely on his best players now for heavy minutes in the playoffs. I think there are reasons to believe that the Bucks, you know, they have enough, I think, and they've changed enough to at least slay this postseason demon, and that's beating Miami and, you know, getting back to the second round. But then there are other ways where it's like, I still, like, I believe all that, and I still think this is just a really tough matchup for them. Like, some teams are just bad matchups for you, and I think the Heat remain a bad matchup for the Bucks. And, you know, like, one... Look, we, we've talked about how hyper-aggressive the Heat defense has been this season and sometimes, you know, to their own detriment. But the, like, the one thing that that over-aggressive defense is going to do is it's going to put a lot of pressure on you to make quick decisions. And if you do that, if you make quick decisions and your shooters shoot up to their capabilities, you can, you can abuse the Heat because, you know, for the second year in a row, they give up the greatest um, percentage of opposing three-point attempt rate. I think it's like 45.9% of opponents' shots against the Heat come from three-point range. That's a product of their hyper-aggressive defense. And then, you know, teams ending up in whether it's four-on-three situations or just swinging the ball around, you find the open man. Again, the, the Bucks I think, are better equipped to handle that this year with Drew Holiday because, you know, I mentioned needing to make quick decisions and needing to, you know, make your open jumpers against that Heat defense, well, Drew Holiday helps in both regards. If he's got the ball in his hands, he will make the quick decisions. If the ball finds him after, you know, Giannis or Middleton makes a quick decision, he has proven he can hit shots and hit big shots. The guy's had an insanely efficient year. But I also think that, you know, there's a reverse side there. Like if if Giannis does, you know, have an indecisive game or hesitates for even a second, if for whatever reason, the Bucs just have a cold shooting series or, you know, as has happened in the past with this team, if some of their complementary players all of a sudden just maybe shy away from the moment a little bit and don't seem capable of being big shot makers, then all of a sudden things will start to pile on them here like very quickly again because the Heat have that ability. So I'm torn in a way because I am leaning Bucks. I, I did pick them. I, I think it'll go the distance. I think they'll win in seven. And I think they, as I said, have 
you know, have changed in enough ways that they should win this matchup. But I still think Miami presents like very unique matchup challenges for them that if the Bucks are not like super sharp and on their game and displaying the things that they have displayed for the last five months, again, I do think this could get ugly for them very quickly. Yeah, I'm, I'm just like less concerned from Milwaukee's perspective. And maybe that's like, you know, fool me twice, shame on me. I don't know. At this point, it'd be fool me thrice. Extreme shame on me if I get fooled for a third time. But, you know, a couple things. So first off, I, I picked the Bucks to win in six. I would say I was closer to picking them in five than I was to picking them in seven. I went with six basically just because of my respect for playoff Jimmy Butler and what he's capable of. And obviously, like, Bam, too. Uh, and he makes that defense work you know, as much or even more than Butler does. And he's the guy often who is making those hard traps happen and his ability to recover makes them work. And he's proven to be a great option on Giannis if they want to make him the primary in that assignment. And yes, there are, there are buttons that they can press at the offensive end that can give the Bucks some headaches and get them out of their base scheme. few things about that. One, I think the Bucks are less beholden to that base scheme than they were last year. They do have the option, you know, if Miami is just getting hot from deep, if Hero and Dragic are reigning pull-up jumpers, if Duncan Robinson is getting loose off those dribble handoffs and burning the drop. I think, and I've written about this this season, like the Bucks have experimented with like playing Brooke Lopez at the level of the screen, even having him switch. I don't think that's the answer. He hasn't looked particularly good doing that. I still think his greatest asset, his greatest value is as a rim protector and defensive rebounder. Pulling him out to the perimeter hasn't really worked for them. But the option to downsize, like to throw PJ Tucker in there, even Pat Connaughton in there, like when they've gone with Giannis at the five, with Connaughton in, like with the rest of the starters, they have demolished teams. And I'm not a huge Pat Connaughton guy, but like they've been tremendous when they played those looks. Um, but with him or with Tucker, like they have the option to go smaller and to switch everything. And I think the switching, which saw some bumps in the road early on, has gotten a lot smoother as the season's gone along. So they have that in their back pocket if they need to go to it. And I, I think there's a chance they might not need to go to it, or at least might not need to go to it too often, because the Heat just don't shoot the ball like they did last year. Like they were second in the league in three-point percentage last year, and this year they're 19th. And I know playoff series small sample that can change like they still have good movement shooters Duncan Robinson obviously foremost among them Dragic can get super hot even Hero can get super hot like they can tilt the math and they can force the Bucks to adjust but I think the Bucks have more buttons they can press now if they need to adjust and on the other side of things I think holiday changes so much for them like you, you think about what the Heat were able to do defensively, how aggressive they were able to be in terms of stunting and doubling, building that wall. A lot of that had to do with the fact that they were able to completely ignore Eric Bledsoe. And for them to be able to do that with basically zero consequences, they can't do that this time. Holiday, first of all, I think he needs to be respected off the ball because of how well he shot it this year. And second of all, as an on-ball creator, I mean, he's been a really, really good one-on-one scorer this year. In terms, like, you know, he can just sort of play bully ball and drive to the rim. He can take smaller guards into the post. 
who's going to guard him? Like Butler could guard him, but then who's guarding Middleton? Like the 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 Heat backcourt defense is not great. You talk about like Hero, Kendrick Nunn, Dragic, one of those guys, unless the Heat decide to zone up, which is another conversation. But like, if they're playing at one-on-one, like who's guarding Holiday? I think that becomes a problem for them. Um, and then, you know, lastly, it's like, you know, Giannis, I think the team they have this year allows him to play more in an off-ball role. Like, I don't think we're going to see last year where it's like they have to rely so heavily on him just initiating possessions from the top and driving into that wall over and over and over again. Like they can use him as a screener. They can use him as a dribble handoff hub. So if teams are kind of sagging off of him, then you have the movement shooters in in Middleton and Holiday and Bryn Forbes who can come off those DHOs and take advantage of that space. I think he's been really good as a roller in pick and roll. The Bucks have gotten really good at using his roll gravity to open up skip passes to open shooters. I just think they're way better equipped for this matchup this time around. So yeah, I, I, I comfortably picked them in six. All right. I mean, you've asked me like for two that I'm interested in now, like you chime in here with the series you're most interested in of the four we've got left. I mean, we've got what? Knicks, Heat, Blazers, Nuggets, Nets, Celtics, and Mavs Clippers. Um, The one that I had the most trouble picking was Knicks Hawks. I flip-flopped on my pick in that series a good 15 or 20 times. And like, I wound up going with Knicks in seven. At one point I had Hawks in five and I just kind of like went back and forth, not sure of which I was going to pick. And I kind of, that's a series for me where like, I can reason my way through it and look at the teams on paper. And I feel like the Hawks are the better team. And yet I wound up just sort of going with my gut, which is not something that I tend to do. Like my, my default, I think is to, pick with my head rather than my heart but for some reason this matchup was pulling me in that direction there's like this ruggedness to the Knicks I feel like that that I expect to translate pretty well to the postseason and you know they I think they rely on fewer defensive liabilities than the Hawks do which was a big sort of swing factor to me but you pick the Hawks Um, So why don't you give me your rationale for that? And then uh, we can go back and forth. I mean, look, I'm on the same boat as you in a lot of ways uh, in terms of having trouble picking this matchup and, and actually having maybe a little more faith in the Knicks like playoff readiness because of the rugged defensive nature of their team. Also another thing too, like it's pretty incredible. The Knicks and the Hawks finish with the exact same record. And from a point differential perspective, uh, the Hawks were a plus 167. The Knicks were a plus 166. The Knicks swept the season series, but in terms of like just trying to find a match, like this is a very, very even four or five matchup, you know, in terms of base stats. And then even in just terms of like the classic offense versus defense, right? The Hawks are pretty high powered offense at their best that maybe struggle to stop teams, but the Knicks are this, you know, rugged defense that, um, really struggle to score at times. I think it's it's a cool matchup in that sense. But yeah, the reason they end up leaning Hawks is I just think they are actually a much better team, the vastly superior team that just happened to have a terribly unlucky regular season. And so it now looks like they are equal uh, with the Knicks. Like if you start digging into the numbers, um, look, when they're healthy, the Hawks are very different. 
Um, you know, I mentioned last week that Clint Capella would be like the sneaky defensive player of the year because the way he's transformed that defense. Um, when Clint Capella and DeAndre Hunter are healthy, this is actually a surprisingly competent defensive roster. And this season with those guys on the court, I mean, even with just Capella on the court, but especially with both Capella and Hunter on the court, they've even proved that you can cobble together a competent, if not better than competent defense with Trey Young on the court, which is no easy task. They went 27 and 11 after Nate McMillan took over from Lloyd Pierce. Uh, in the 341 minutes Capella and Hunter shared the court, they defended at a rate more than five points stingier than the Lakers' top-ranked defense. Bogdan Bogdanovich has been an absolute walking flamethrower since finding his health and fitness after returning from the knee fracture. You know, Atlanta's like 10 or 11 guys deep, and they don't really give any minutes to any bad players. Although I do agree with you, they do give minutes to some defensive liabilities. Um, you know, they, they have the star at the top of the roster that you want going into the playoffs and Trey Young. Just the more I dive into this matchup, the more it seems to me like, okay, the Hawks are just the better team. They just ended up in this matchup because of some really bad injury luck and a very weird roller coaster of a season. And I'm going Hawks in seven. And, and I said all that about how much better I think the Hawks are. The only reason I'm even going and saying this will go the distance is because of the faith I have, A, in the, you know, this rugged nature that Tom Thibodeau has instilled there, and also in Julius Randle. I mean, anyone who's listened to this podcast the last few weeks knows how much of a fan I am of what Randle's doing in the season he's had, and that's coming from someone who coming into this year has never been a Julius Randle guy. He has really won me over this year. My faith in them is the reason I'm even picking this to go the distance. Because otherwise, I think if you if you really look up and down these rosters and the matchups, and um, Atlanta's the better team. And if you look at each team's weakness, I have a hell of a lot more faith in Atlanta's defense when they're healthy than I actually do in the Knicks' offense. Like I think the Knicks, especially in a postseason setting, man, like where possessions are magnified and defenses will do like I think the Knicks could struggle to score and then the last thing I'll mention too is there is still a little bit of like pixie dust and fool's gold hovering over this Knicks team when you look at their jump shooting and I know like at some point it just it is what it is but you know whether it's RJ's three-point shooting which whatever like that could just be something that he's improved he's still young he's become an efficient secondary scorer that's fine but like you know whether it's Randall's long twos and jump shooting in general whether it's the way Derek Rose and Reggie Bullock have absolutely shot the lights out from mid-range and long two range. And the Knicks have actually like third in the NBA in three point percentage. Yes. But I'm saying even, even when they like Bullock, for example, I think it's only like 15% of his shots come from 10 feet to the three point line, but on those shots, he's shooting better than 50%. Same thing with Derek Rose. At some point you'd think regression will hit. And if it hits in this series, given the way the Knicks already struggle to score, like it will be a, very, very long series for them because they will, it'll be a labor for them to score. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I'm going Hawks for all of those reasons. Yeah. So, I mean, basically all the reasons you mentioned are why I initially felt like I was going to pick the Hawks. And just overall, I think the Knicks do have a bit of a math problem because mm -hmm. they don't shoot a lot of threes. They don't shoot a ton of free throws. And they also give up a lot of threes and a lot of shots at the rim. And they've just been getting away with that because, um, well, for a few reasons. One, their rim protection is legitimately incredible. And that's both because of their individual rim protectors like Nerlens Noel, Taj Gibson, even Randall to an extent. Uh, and also just because of how conscious they are as a team. 
you know, so that's one reason. And that's the one I think I really believe in, in terms of sustainability. But another reason is, like I said, they were third in the league in three point percentage, which I don't know how that happened. And I'm not sure I believe that that's real. And another reason is they were first in the league in opponent three point percentage, uh, meaning they had the lowest opponent three point percentage, which is, I mean, we, we do this every year. And I always say like one team has to finish first in that stat. And there's a good chance that it's going to correlate to good overall defense. And I'm never going to say that it's purely luck when that happens. You know, I've watched the Knicks. The Knicks defense has absolutely passed the eyeball test to me this season. They rotate on a string. They do, but like they also, it's not just about effort. Like they're, they communicate really well. They're in sync. They rotate on a string. They fly out at you. They make you work deep in the shot clock. All the stuff that you could use to rationalize that extremely low opponent three-point percentage has been there and very evident all season. But I also believe there is a limit to how much you can actually control opponent three-point shooting, you know, at least in terms of accuracy. Volume is the one I think you can control a little bit more, and the Knicks haven't done that. And I'd be worried about their defense maybe regressing a bit against a Hawks team that shoots it very well from outside. So that's why I was kind of leaning Hawks. And the thing that started to turn me a little bit is like, I started thinking about Trey Young in the playoffs. And to to just start out with, like, I think Trey Young is amazing. I, I actually think that if anything, he's maybe become a little bit underrated by a large portion of the NBA viewing slash analyzing public. Like the, the things that he is able to do with the ball, the way that he's able to manipulate defenses, his passing, like he is an offensive wizard. But if you were to kind of draw up the profile of a star player who was going to struggle in his first playoff go around, I feel like it would look a lot like Trey Young, you know, undersized, major defensive liability, hunts a lot of ticky-tack shooting fouls, that tend to dry up in the postseason, doesn't always make the best decisions when he gets trapped or get the ball out fast enough. I just, like, can't you just see Tibbs kind of drawing up a game plan to frustrate him and guys being physical with him and him getting frustrated and just generally having a rough go and having to internalize and learn from that experience? Like, I feel like that is what's coming. I, I can absolutely see that. And my counter to that would be like, would say that's why they got Bogdan Bogdanovich because no, because no, no, like, and we, we talked about this, like their offense. Uh, yes. Obviously it relies on Trey young, but it is no longer as reliant on Trey young. They can survive offensively. If Trey young's having an off game, when Trey young's on the bench because of the player Bogdan Bogdanovich is, and because of the player he's been, especially the last month or so. Now, if, if he shits the bed and you know, Thibodeau's got, Trey Young in the friggin' punishment chamber, then then they're in trouble. But I, I find it hard to believe that both those guys will be locked up. Although I don't know. I mean, maybe that maybe that's the next next surprising defensive act. Yeah, and I, I even said in our preview that like I the, the Hawks have way more firepower, way more complementary offensive talent, and should thus be way better equipped to survive a substandard performance from their star than the Knicks are 
from theirs. But I also kind of think that the Hawks, I, I don't think they have as many ways to shut off Randall's water as the Knicks might when it comes to Trey. And I mean, we can talk, I guess, about some of the ways, you know, some of the things they might try to do to keep a lid on Randall. They certainly didn't have any luck doing that in the regular season. He lit them up for like a billion points a game in that season series, which the Knicks swept, by the way. But I just think for right now, like I kind of believe in Randall's game translating a little bit better to the playoffs and, and especially in this matchup, because I don't know. What do you, what do you think the, the Hawks will try to do to him? I've heard people suggest that maybe they just stick Capella on him, but I think, I don't know. If like, you do, do, do you want Capella out on the perimeter? Like that, Randall's become a perimeter type player, you know? No, I know that that's exactly what I was going to say. Like, I, I, I don't know if you want that. If you're the Hawks, like it's not that simple as, okay, we're just going to put our best defensive big against their star big. Like I, Randall's game as much as he can be like an absolute bruiser offensively inside Randall's game is not that of like a throwback big man that you can stick you know a a defensive anchor like Capella on him like that putting Capella on Randall could actually compromise the Hawks defense in that it yeah it pulls Capella away from the rim it puts him in space which he's been better at this year but no no like it's not his strength it's not his strength but also I mean like Capella's actually been a pretty competent switch defender in the past like I, I he can handle himself on the perimeter. He moves his feet well. I think it's more about the first point you made, which is like it pulls him away from the rim and they need his rim protection and his yes. defensive rebounding more so than it's like a worry about whether he can hang on the perimeter. It's more like, I think you just need him close to the basket. His rim protection and defensive rebounding is the reason, you know, in addition to DeAndre Hunter, but like that, those are the reasons the Hawks are what they are defensively when they're healthy. It's because mm-hmm. of, Clint Capella's room protection and re- defensive rebounding this year. Yeah. So I think probably at least to start and like maybe in high leverage spots when you think Randall's just going to ISO and you just need a stop, then maybe you put Capella on him. But I think, you know, they're in their, in their base coverage. It should be Collins or even Hunter as the primary on him with Capella there to help at the rim. If he goes to the drive or goes to the post up, happens to bust through that first line of defense but again they didn't have any success stopping him in the regular season so we'll have to see um and I guess you know the last point that I would make kind of I guess in the Hawks favor is for you know for all that talk I guess about Trey being a defensive liability the Knicks don't have a lot of guys who can go mismatch hunting I don't think and Randall could be one of those guys right like him running an inverted pick and roll where Trey's guy is screening for him. That could definitely be a weapon. I, we, I don't recall seeing the Knicks doing a ton of that in the regular season, but whether that's forcing switches or just forcing the Hawks to hedge, to keep Trey out of the switch, I think that would be a great button to press to get the Hawks defense in rotation. Aside from that, who, like who else is there? That's really mismatch hunting Trey. Like I, I don't think that Barrett is quite that type of player yet where he's just going to like find a smaller defender and just absolutely beast him. Like he can get his bully ball on at times to be sure, but I think it's sort of like Randall and that's about it when it comes to attacking Trey. And maybe that's just the button they press over and over and over again. Uh, It's possible, but I think maybe it's like, yeah, Trey is a defensive liability, but I don't know if the Knicks are the team that is best equipped to take advantage of that necessarily. 
Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. I, I, everything's coming up Hawks for me. Um, I will say, though, sh- uh, shameless plug, debut episode of a new series on the Scores YouTube channel today is going to be on Julius Randle. The series is called Making Waves. Oh, baby. Um, please, if... Uh, and, and this week's Unfiltered uh, on Friday is scripted by Wolfon. So a lot of, lot of Pound the Rock-related content on the YouTube page the next couple of days. And yeah, just a, a reminder again, anyone who hasn't, subscribe to the Score on YouTube. As always, Cash, you're doing unbelievable work on all those Appreciate videos you, and, man. and churning them out. Like the 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 prolific rate at which you're churning them out is always impressive to me. Appreciate um, you. So I think yeah, we've we've spent a ton of time on this series, and I think maybe that's just because we actually really haven't talked that much about the Hawks or Knicks this season. So felt we like still we have three series to go. Felt like we could go a little bit longer on them. Yeah, I mean we do, but I have like very little to say about Nets Celtics. Like we can just Same. get that out of the way. I think. You know, the big thing to me is do the Nets have somebody who can guard Tatum one-on-one? Like he went for 50 against the Wizards because they did not have that guy. And he was either just shooting over smaller defenders or scoring over them in the post, or they were just sending double teams his way. And that was opening everything up for the Celtics offense. Uh, With the Nets, I think at least they have KD who Tatum's not really going to be able to shoot over. And I actually think when they played in the regular season, like Durant did a pretty good job on him. Tatum's incredible. Don't get me wrong, but I, I don't see the Celtics as having much of a hope here. Like I would confidently pick the Nets in five. Same. Yeah. I was going to say you could almost make, I think the over under for Celtics wins in this series, 0.5. And I think that would be like, no, I'm serious. I, I no, think no, that I would be the debate. It's like, do they get one or do they get swept? Uh, Tatum's incredible, but they just don't have enough, especially with Jalen Brown out. I think the the thing to watch here is Kyrie finally gets the Celtics. Right. Except it's in the playoffs. And and will play now in front of this will still be the first time he has played in front of the Celtics crowd since everything went down. Unless he doesn't play, which I mean, I guess there's a greater than zero percent chance knowing Kyrie. But uh I I think it'll be fun to see what Kyrie is about to do to the Celtics. Yeah, and I just you know, if you want to take it to a tactical level, it's like to me the Nets biggest weakness or biggest point of concern is their interior defense and the Celtics really don't put very much pressure on the rim so I think it's a terrible matchup for them and outside of Tatum's individual brilliance which I think could be enough to steal them a game and like you know Kemba started to play a lot better obviously Marcus Smart is going to make winning plays and I mean with Jalen Brown they I I could say like they kind of have the horses to like slow down Brooklyn's three stars as well as almost any other team, but with Jalen out and now they're relying, I guess on like semi Ojale or Aaron Neesmith, like who else are they playing on the wing? I'm just not seeing much of a path for them to even make this a competitive series, to be honest. All right. So Blazers nuggets. (laughs) Yes. Blazers nuggets. So this is actually the other series. I think that I had the hardest time with. Um, And I really surprised myself with the pick that I wound up going with. I wound up picking Blazers in seven and I fully went into this exercise expecting to pick the Nuggets. Like I've been saying, I think we still need to consider them a fringe title contender in spite of their injuries, just because of Jokic and what he's capable of. We wrote a piece a few days ago about the questions facing the West title contenders and we listed five teams in that piece, and one of them was Denver. The Blazers were not one of them. So it might seem strange 
that I'm picking Portland to win this series, but I, I'm still going to stand by like citing Denver as a fringe contender and not having Portland because I don't actually think Portland has a chance to win. I do still think, you know, the, the Nuggets have this sort of outside chance and that Jokic gives them that chance. That doesn't mean that I think they're going to win this series because I don't necessarily love how the matchup broke for them. I think I, I, I would have liked Denver's chances better against Dallas, to be honest. I, I kind of just felt like I found myself digging into the matchup and I wouldn't say it's favorable to Portland exactly. Because, you know, they have the 29th ranked defense in the league and Jokic is probably the best offensive player alive. But I do think it's kind of a good draw for them in a lot of ways. So that was how I wound up picking them. Um, I Even looking at it from the Blazers' defensive perspective, right? Like where they are weakest defensively is in the backcourt. And not only without Jamal Murray, but like we don't know the health status of Will Barton. It, their guards are like, Campazzo, Monty Morris, Austin Rivers, they don't really have the guards who can exploit the Blazers' weak backcourt defense. And the Blazers' two best defenders, Yusuf Nurkic, Robert Covington, kind of fortuitous that they match up positionally with the Nuggets' by far two best offensive players in Jokic and Michael Porter Jr., and it's not exact, you know, it's not going to work out exactly that way, obviously, because there's a lot of help stuff that the Blazers are going to have to do that they haven't been very good at doing this season. But I do think the fact that it worked out that way for them, and the fact that I think their offense could have a lot of success attacking the Nuggets' defense made me lean in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I, we wrote that post together. I agreed with everything you kind of came up with for the advantages Portland has in the series. And it still really did a lot of it come back for me and come down to what you mentioned at the beginning with Jokic and faith in him. And the the fact that the level he's playing at right now gives this team an outside chance, you know, makes them fringe contenders despite losing the dynamic talent that Jamal Murray is. Yeah. I just think that the way he can, pick apart and I think you mentioned this in the piece as well that we wrote together but Portland being a a brutal help defensive a brutal defensive team in general but especially looking lost in the sauce when it comes to help and rotations Jokic is like very uniquely skilled and talented and equipped to absolutely feast and pick apart on teams like that that struggle with their help rotations because he's either going to feast on you as a scorer or he's going to pick you apart as a playmaker and if you're if your rotations are not on point like he can just have his way with you and yeah like you know I get what you're saying about the 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 Nuggets undersized backcourt not really being built to stop the Blazers trio of Lillard McCollum and Powell but you know I'd also argue that if you actually look at the kind of roster left post Murray injury the Nuggets actually have a like surprisingly competent defensive makeup. And I think they can summon enough of that. I really do. And like even, you know, Aaron Gordon being the non-traditional um, rim protector and help defender this team has needed for a while. I think, look, Gordon's not Gordon's not like the kind of guy you you necessarily just say, okay, go guard down and like guard Lillard on the perimeter. But I think he can do it in a pinch. And I think that's big, right? Like I think this will be a very 
close series. I think it'll be a lot of tight games. And I think Aaron Gordon is the kind of guy, like if you need him to do it in a pinch and in crunch time, he can. Mm -hmm. And so while I don't think, you know, if you just go matchup by matchup, position by position, they have the goods to stop the Blazers backcourt. I do think in general, they've got enough defensive problem solvers that they can figure it out and that they have advantages in other ways, namely just the massive advantage that Jokic is. So I'm still leaning Denver. Yeah, which I, I think is yeah, to- totally fair. Like, I, I think it's going to be really close. I could easily see it going Denver's way. The, the one thing with Gordon potentially like guarding Lillard, which I do think is definitely an option and something that the Nuggets will look to go to. I think they can only really do that if like Paul Millsap is also on the floor. Maybe Jamichael Green. I mean, maybe even MPJ because he has gotten way better as a weak side helper. But that second line of defense is so important with the way that the Nuggets defend because you know Jokic is going to be up at the level. And I do think that's the best way for him to defend against Lillard, right? You try and take away the pull-up, prevent him from turning the corner. He has, like we saw against Utah last year, for whatever reason, the Nuggets decided to use him in a drop for the first couple of games and he just got traffic coned by Donovan Mitchell. Like they're going to have him at the level, which means... If you have Aaron Gordon defending on the ball, that second wave of defense has to be there. Like there has got to be somebody rotating on the back end, taking away the rim. And I don't think they can navigate that if they don't also have somebody like Millsap on the floor. And maybe Porter Jr. is up to it. He has gotten much better in that regard. He, He still makes mistakes, but maybe he's up to it. But in general, I just think like so much is going to come down to to that second wave of defense. And that can be Gordon if he's defending off of the ball and the Nuggets are rolling with like Campazzo or Monty Morris or somebody like that guarding Dame. Millsap honestly has been the key to that coverage against Portland in the past. Like the series that they played two years ago, I know the Blazers wound up winning it, but the first few games of that series, like Millsap was totally dominating at the defensive end. And he was doing that because he was able to rove off of Al Farouk Aminu and Mo Harkless very freely. And that's why, you know, my big X factor in the series is Robert Covington, because that's the guy that the Nuggets are going to be helping off of most liberally. And so he's got to be able to make them pay by like knocking down his spot up threes or driving closeouts and making productive plays off of the catch. Um, I think that's going to be really important. And then I'm really fascinated in what Covington's role is going to be defensively because like I mentioned the positional matchups there and how he could be their answer to Porter Jr. But Covington's also like by far their best help defender. And he can't really be active as a helper if he's guarding MPJ. He's going to have to be like trailing him over screens, taking away his airspace. He's either the primary on MPJ or he's their primary help defender. I don't think he can be both. So you're looking for a guy to like dig down and double Jokic like Covington's the best guy for the job he's big he's got great hands but then who's guarding Porter Jr you know I'm really curious to see how how Portland tries to figure that out yeah it's 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 gonna be interesting and I think we're both in agreement that Robert Covington is the unquestioned x factor in this series yeah without a doubt I think um that in many ways the matchup kind of hinges on him and what he does but I, I could say the same in some ways for like you know, the, the Gordon, Millsap, Porter Jr. triumvirate. Like, I think that's going to be really interesting too. But yeah, I think that that to me is like one of the tightest series and one of the hardest ones to call. Wound up going Blazers in seven, but 
could absolutely see uh, the Nuggets taking it on the strength of Nikola Jokic alone. I think we've just got one more here, right? Clippers, Mavs? Yeah. Um, one that was not hard for you to pick. Well, Clippers really in five. Yeah, like didn't have much trouble with it. Didn't think about it too much. Of course, I said the same thing last year and it wound up being a lot closer than I I anticipated. But what do you think? Do you disagree with me? Like, like how do you see that shaking out? You see it being a longer series? You see the Mavs pulling the upset? What do you think? No, I think, I think it'll be a longer series. I disagree with you that it'll be kind of a cakewalk for the Clippers. I mean, the, the reasons why you're picking the Clippers to kind of win in a cakewalk, I agree with, you know, like the Mavs don't have the defensive personnel to deal with Leonard or George. The Clippers check every box of a championship contender. As I mentioned, them, the Suns and the Jazz, um, you know, came out as the three clear-cut favorites when I did that statistical profile piece. You know, they own every advantage in the series. They'll lean more on Zubac this postseason, whether by choice or force than they did last year. They should be overwhelming favorites, but I still believe in Doncic's otherworldly abilities uh, and his penchant for rising to the occasion enough that I'm giving Dallas a couple of games. And um, look, I can't remember who it was that tweeted it a couple days ago. They put up, they you know, if you separate the NBA into the three tiers, like the top 10, the, the middle I know 10, what you're talking about. I think it was Seth Partnow about like how okay, teams yeah. have performed against the best yeah, teams da- in the league. Dallas had the number one net rating in terms of playing the top 10 teams in the league. Like this is a team that does rise to the occasion. I think Doncic is a big part of that. Um, so I I just think there's enough evidence there that they will at least be in this. Like I just can't see them getting trucked. Now maybe that ends up being, you know, they lose, they get swept or they lose in five games, but each game is close. Maybe mm. it's one of those type series. But I do think this will be more competitive than some people, yourself included, are, are giving the Mavs credit for. And look, some of it for me too is like, Maybe it's still like Clippers induced PTSD from last, like the way they melted down last yes. playoffs. But look, th- that's a real thing, man. And I think what was most jarring for me at the time in the way they blew that series to the Nuggets was that Kawhi himself, who like I previously referred to as inevitable in the postseason, he even kind of cratered, not kind of, he even cratered. Yeah, he proved to be like, quite evitable after all. Right, right. He he cratered in a way where it was like he wasn't as forceful. And I know that was the second round. That was well after they had beaten the Mavs already. But my point is, is that there was just something about the way they flamed out last year that just coupled with even this year, as dominant as they were, they're still prone to their bouts of like, what are they doing? They're not really at full gear. They don't seem in sync. For as good and as dominant as this team is, and as talented as they are, there is still a sense of vulnerability that I just can't shake about them. And so that, coupled with you know the reasons I met between Doncic and Dallas's performance against good teams, I think I think the Clippers will win, and it won't go the distance. But I'll give Dallas two games. I just I think they deserve that respect. And that actually um, leads me to a segue for this week's fan shout-out, the official fan shout-out of the week. Um, Andres Varela Gomez in Markham, Ontario. Uh, according to his Twitter, he's in Markham, Ontario. As usual, hope I'm pronouncing the name right. And, and the the reason I said this was a perfect segue to him is because he reached out a couple of weeks ago on Twitter to say he's a big fan of Pound the Rock and has been for a couple of years now. Um, but he ended that tweet by saying, but... As a Mavs fan, I was excited seeing the wide open West title for this week's episode and then was completely bamboozled when not a single word about Luca and the Mavs was spoken. So uh, one, great use of the word bamboozled. Uh, two, thank you for being a fan, Andres. But uh, three, I, 
this was a great segue because I actually finally replied to him last night saying, well, we got Mavs Clippers talk coming tomorrow. And we ended up saving it for last and barely touching on it. And, you know, you said that the Mavs don't even belong in this series. So I did not say that. Okay. So uh, but look. anyway, shout out to Andres. And as usual, hit us up on social media. Let us know how long you've been listening and uh, where you listen from. And we'll get you a shout out on a future episode. Okay. Thank you. I know we usually save those for the end of the episode, but I do... I want to dive into like a couple of specifics here. Okay. I I don't think like the Mavs don't belong here. I think they're a good team. And I think to your point, like, yeah, it could be a five gamer where a bunch of the games are competitive. I just don't think there's ever going to be a point where they really threaten to win the series. But again, I was wrong about that last year. I could be wrong about it again. I just look at this matchup and I see way more matchup advantages for the Clippers than for Dallas. And I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit that I hope the Clippers pick this time around. And one thing is just getting away from like the automatic switching that I think haunted them in that series last year where, yeah, they would start out with like PG or Kawhi as the primary on Doncic, but then the Mavs would just bring a small screener and suddenly Luca would be staring down, you know, Reggie Jackson or Landry Shamit instead. It's like work harder to avoid those switches keep your best individual defenders on Luca. try to avoid sending too much help his way and unlocking his playmaking, stay home on shooters. That's one thing. And another thing uh, that I mentioned in our preview is play Ivica Zubac more. If you look at Luca's numbers in last year's series, even in this regular season, when Zubac is on the floor, he gets to the rim less, he gets to the free throw line less, he turns the ball over way more often. Zubac is the Clippers' best big man pick-and-roll defender. And it might not seem that way because everybody is in love with switching and everybody loves Serge Ibaka for that reason, even though I don't actually think he's a very good switch defender at this point in his career. Like, he's better as a drop defender. But Zubac is a better drop defender than Serge. And I think Serge is still good and has a ton of utility to this Clippers team. But I kind of think the fact that he's working his way back from this injury and that Zubac is going to get more minutes as a result isn't the worst thing in the world because his defense in the pick and roll can really deter Luca from getting to the rim and, and force him to be more of a jump shooter, which I think is what you want him to be, you know, rather than a, an at rim scorer or somebody who's living at the free throw line or somebody who is able to make plays because he's putting the defense in rotation. The one counter to that, that is sort of an easy fallback for Dallas is okay, you go with Porzingis at the five and you have him pop and then suddenly you're pulling Zubac out of the paint and that's opening things up for Luka. And with that, what I'm very interested to see because I saw the Clippers do this in a regular season game against Brooklyn was they had Zubac guarding Bruce Brown and they had Kawhi guarding DeAndre Jordan so that they could switch the screening actions with DeAndre And I wonder if they do something similar in this series where like Kawhi or PG is on Porzingis and the other one of them is on Luka and they're just switching those actions and hoping that Zubac kind of has enough of a hiding place that he can still hang close to the rim. Dallas doesn't have a ton of those guys like like even Dorian Finney-Smith, who's sort of the name that I threw out as like a possibility for him to hide on, shot 39% from three this year. So maybe that doesn't work and, and maybe that Luca Porzingis pick and pop is 
deadly enough that it busts the Clippers coverage and they don't have an answer for it. I think that's possible. But for now, as I look at this matchup, I think the Clippers just have more ways to guard Luka than the Mavs do to guard the combination of Kawhi and PG. All right. What do you think? 90 minutes of playoff preview talk enough or what? I think that's probably good. I, I got one bold prediction for winner of Lakers Suns wins the West, if not the title. Uh, if it's okay. Lakers, I mean that, yeah, that's certainly a bold prediction. Do I have to make one now in, in you don't have to, but you could feel free, but my bold prediction wasn't done. Oh, okay. Win, winner of Lakers Suns wins the West, if not the title. And if it's the Lakers, Chris Paul ends up in Miami. Wow. I don't, I don't see him leaving Phoenix after this. I, I know I know that there's like the whole, like he also, there's reports he wants to stay on the West Coast closer to his family in LA. Mm-hmm. So I could be way, uh, again, it's a bold prediction. Yeah. Based on zero intel. <laughs> and simply me thinking if he were to leave, like if they do lose in the first round and he judges them based on that, which I don't think he should because they just got a bad draw. But if he were to leave after losing the first round, where would he end up? And then you like think about who's got cap space and the heat will because the Oladipo situation obviously went up in flames. But yeah. And then I started thinking, oh, Chris Paul, heat culture, Jimmy mm-hmm. Butler. I, I don't know. I just, it seems all signs are pointing to him sticking around, whether it's him picking up that player option or he declines it and they just re-sign him. Um, I just think that marriage has been too successful for them to punt on it after one year. I think there's like a lot of mutual interest in that partnership extending for at least another couple of years and to me i just i keep thinking that lowry is the guy who's going to end up in miami i just think that makes so much sense for both him and the heat but obviously you know that depends on the raptors willingness to pay him to bring him back and his willingness to stay in toronto and buy into what they're building and whether he thinks they have a chance to really compete for a championship and what's going to be the twilight of his career but um miami's in a good spot going into the season with potentially you know, close to max level cap room. So they are definitely going to be a team to look out for. Um, they're also going to be a team that's going to be out of the first round in five or six games. And with that, we're going to put a bow on this playoff preview episode. Uh, enjoy the play-in games the next couple of games. Then enjoy the playoffs proper, which are going to start on Saturday. We're going to try and come back early-ish next week to break down the first game or first couple of games in each series. But until then... Thank you for listening. Enjoy yourselves. For Joseph Cacharo. Enjoy being fooled thrice. <laughs> for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock.